Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, another round of protests against one of government's biggest IT contracts. A new workforce office may just be the same old job. And a VA workforce training success story. It's Monday, November 28th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Coming tomorrow on the Daily Scoop podcast, customer experience progress at the Thrift Savings Plan. Kim Weaver of the TSP is on tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast. You can get that show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and always at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Salesforce brings the public sector and customers together in the digital age. To access the new Veteran Mental Health and Resiliency Resources module, go to trailhead.salesforce.com. The list of protesters on the CIO SP4 GWAC at NIH is up to 117. NITAC's been working on the vehicle for more than a year. Keith Nakasoni is federal senior strategist at VMware. He's former deputy assistant commissioner for acquisition in the office of the IT category at the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. Keith, welcome. It's great to see you again. Thanks for coming on today. We talked a little bit about this before we went on the air, and there were two words suggested about what the right situation is to try to, to get these uh, big GWAX right. You use the word partnership. I use the word balance. How do those words fit together in establishing a huge GWAC like NITAC is trying to do? Welcome. Thanks a lot, Francis. Yeah, one of the things um, uh, that we look at is, you know, having this partnership and the partnership ecosystem, you know, we talk about collaboration, right? Active uh, communication between the parties. And, And this is one of the things that from a resource perspective, government has to be prepared for handling large government-wide acquisition contracts as, as well as addressing the, um, uh, the, the activities and the workflows that ha- happen along through the entire process and the partnership and active engagement, you know, getting information back and forth to, to um, from one another is going to be key um, because one of the things that we learned through the entire process of putting these large government wide acquisition contracts together is the ability to understand frame of reference, right? If we don't understand the government's requirements and if we don't understand where industry is coming from and having that transparency it can be really problematic especially if discussions are not happening happening through the entire process that source selection process and there is times where you know discussions shut down but getting meaningful information back to the ones uh let's say that did not make it through the the um selection process communicating the messages of why they did not um make it through and you know what deficiencies was um found through that process or if there's things that they uh, a company could have done better in responding but having active engagement understanding the requirements understanding um, uh, the entire requirements is is key to the success right so you know I'll, I'll talk about um, the for example the stars three right one of the major priorities for stars three was to grow that industrial base grow small business have production uh, a good productive contract that could help 
that um, grow the uh, IT industrial base. And when we look at it in the past, I mean, when we see, I think there was um, a notice out there and Laura Stan talked about, um, you know, having a 149 new awards that to small businesses that have never received an award before. That is huge because that's an indicator that the process worked, right? So when, when we look at the evolution of how uh, government-wide contracts are put together, I think that's, that you know, this transparency um, uh, partnership, having that collaborative sessions um, is, is definitely uh, pays huge dividends when, when we're creating these large acquisitions between private and public engagement. You've referenced a couple of times in those remarks, Keith, the size of some of these things. Is there a point where a GWAC can become too large that it's too unwieldy to really effectively execute? Absolutely. So, so when we talk about the requirement, we go back to um, capabilities, right? Addressing um, contracts that will serve a purpose. And, and sometimes it can become way too complex. And that's where government and industry need to engage saying, hey, you're trying to take on way too much in a single contract vehicle. This is why you have a, um, you know, we talk about the federal marketplace. We talk about, you, you know, a, a marketplace of where you can acquire certain services, IT solutions and commodities, right? So when you build that marketplace, it really provides the avenue of saying, you know, like IT schedules. Well, IT schedules can be the baseline for everything commercial off the shelf. Then you have these larger GWACs that get a little bit more specialized, such as focusing on system integrators or focusing on the industrial base, uh, uh, the small disadvantaged businesses, etc. But if you if there is a purpose and there's meaningful requirements that can support um, that whole entire procurement lifecycle and ha- building that marketplace with the different types of contracts, that is going to be huge, right? Because now you're serving the the not only the industry base, but you're serving the um, the uh, contractors that focus in certain areas where they have the ability to grow as well as um, succeed as they uh, uh, look at government business or entering into the public sector space. This might be a noob question. I don't know. What kind of a directory or what kind of a database or resources available for a contracting officer at, you know, pick an agency to know when I'm supposed to buy fill in the blank product or service that that's available on this vehicle or that vehicle, or I should buy it from the schedules or I should do this or that or the other thing. Right. So there's multiple, um, uh, avenues at this point. And this is where I think, you know, when we look at this huge, like a dashboard, this is where probably government can put a little bit more focus in, in achieving that, um, you know, when we look at this uh, GSA schedules program, let's take GSA Advantage, where you can actually search for products, right? Or you can search for services and look at the uh, or conduct market research. And I believe GSA even has a market research as a service that can help contracting officers move forward in actually helping them do their market research for um, specific requirements. Um, and I know. I was just listening in at the Coalition for Government Procurement uh, Conference, and 
uh, the um, VA stood up a pathfinder that can help search specifically for health um, requirements and opportunities. And, and so things like um, this from a procurement innovation perspective really helps not only industry, but it helps the contracting officers kind of manage the um, industrial base within the different sectors. Uh, one of the biggest procurements that's on the landscape right now is supposed to come out uh, within the next couple of weeks. The chief information officer at the Pentagon, John Sherman, said a couple of weeks back that uh, the JWCC cloud procurement is on track for award in mid-December. Now, I talked to a couple of the, you know, the graybeards that have been doing this for a long time, and the expectation is that all of the companies that are eligible will probably get a little piece of that. So the challenge then, if we can get past that without a protest, becomes, okay, now what? Now the awards mm-hmm. have been made and work begins. That's a multi-cloud environment in maybe the most sensitive use case in the federal government. What do you expect to see? What would you watch moving forward as far as how the Pentagon actually deploys that, how they execute and how the vendors execute on the implementation of that, Keith? Again, partnership, right? So when I look at partnership, I think what we um, what we should watch for is the organizational shifts or the organizational change, how the workforce is going to adapt to the multi-cloud solutions or hybrid cloud solutions. I think we should um, watch how the processes will potentially change as well. Because really, when we look at the um, cloud uh, movement, I look at it I look at it from a journey. It's not just this one and done. I, I see it in vo- evolving over time um, and looking at how the infrastructure, how the, how that will change, but also how the, the workforce will also change because the skill sets to run a, a multi-cloud in a hybrid uh, cloud environment is, is definitely different roles and responsibilities will change. Then we have to look at the policies and and. and um, procedures that have been put in place, not only at the DOD level, but at the service level and component level. So when we look at the um, the processes, I, I think we're going to see some workforce um, uh, uh, change and shifts. We're going to see some policy and procedure changes. And then um, eventually look at the technology, right size the environment with the right tools in order to be effective in, in addressing cybersecurity, addressing um, uh, the, uh, the the right amount of tools in the environment to run a cloud solution. You you got us to people, process, and technology, whether you intended to or not, Keith. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, I guess the good news is um, I understand the Defense Department's a completely unique um, uh, environment to everything else on the face of the earth, but there are a fair amount of best practices already in place for these kinds of transitions for the department to at least consider um, integrating into the way it, it does this change management, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I think when, one of the things that we we have to continue this trajectory is the uh, high collaboration, transparency, and understanding the requirements and what the um, uh, the military departments are trying to achieve. Um, it, it, again, mission outcomes is, is huge, right? So success should always be focused on looking at how can we be more successful, not only with the, um, uh, the 
business systems, but the weapon systems, et cetera, we have to look at it holistically and seeing how we can build that ecosystem from private and public engagement um, with acceleration, especially to address the cybersecurity requirements that are coming out. Keith Nakasone, terrific conversation. Thanks for joining me. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me, Francis. You can read more about the CIOSP4 protests in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Cyber leaders from DOD, DHS, HHS, and lots of other agencies will be on hand for the Security Transformation Summit next Thursday at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to read more about the summit and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has its first chief people officer. Elizabeth Colmstetter will join CISA from NASA. Jeff Neal is a member of the board of Higher Road. He's former chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Jeff, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Is there a difference between a Chico and a chief people officer, or is it just semantics? Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Francis. Good to be here. Uh, well, you know, it's kind of funny because I've heard these terms for a long time that you know, people keep trying to come up with something to, to call HR people. And, um, you know, 60 years ago, it was industrial relations. And then they decided that sounded too, too uh, negative. And so they started calling it uh, personnel. And then they decided personnel didn't sound good, that, that people were really resources in an organization and resources are good. And Personnel sounds kind of negative, so it became human resources. And then um, when David Walker was the controller general, he popularized the term human capital because he said, you know, capital is something that's really important to an organization and, and you want to preserve your capital. And so he popularized the term human capital in government. It's not a term you see much in the private sector. You don't, you, you rarely see people in the private sector referring to human capital, uh, mainly because capital sounds a lot like chattel or some other <laughs> negative word and it implies that 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 the people in an organization are something that you own that, that you should you know, should, should try to preserve like capital in your your uh, in your company uh, and so most people and most people like me in this line of work hate the term human capital just really horrible term uh, so people started you know, 20 years ago, some people started saying, well, you know, these programs are really all about people. So why don't we just call them the chief, chief people officer? And um, uh, Google, I think, did that. I think when um, when Laszlo Bach was the head of, of, of the people programs at Google, he was the chief people officer. So really, it's 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 two things. It's It's partly about a profession trying to define itself in a way that doesn't sound so negative. And, and HR is, is, is still the most common term, uh, but HR is one of those that's, that's also sometimes viewed as a negative term. Uh, I've always said that, that HR, because of the way HR organizations are viewed, uh, sometimes means rarely means honored and revered and mostly means hated and reviled. <laughs> and uh, so uh, so what Elizabeth is doing, I think, is, is choosing a term that is partly messaging. And, um, and the, the messaging is that these programs in this organization are there to, to 
help with people issues in an organization, most organizations will tell you and most employees will roll their eyes when they hear the organization say it. Most organizations will say, you know, people are our most important resource. And that is, um, that is BS. Uh, it really is. Um, it's not because it's not true. Uh, actually, people really are the single most important thing that almost every organization has to deal with. Uh, the reality, though, is that they don't act like people are their most important resource. You know, I remember in 33 years in government, and when I was at DLA, for example, we were spending a billion dollars, a billion with a B American dollars on a new computer system. We called it business systems modernization, or as I called it sometimes, BS modernization. And, and so we were spending a billion dollars. And I was trying to spend a few million dollars on critical people programs for the agency. And the finance people frequently were trying to, to claw back every penny from my budget they could. So people were their most important resource, but they didn't want to spend a few million dollars on people. They would rather spend a billion dollars on electrons. So agencies and companies try to, to work this messaging and what I'm really interested to see is, uh, will CISA actually accompany the, the change in rhetoric with the change in priority? Will they fund those people programs? Will they give Elizabeth, and by the way, Elizabeth Kalmstetter is a great choice. I've known Elizabeth for a long, long, long time. She's a really great uh, leader in the, the, the field. She's a very capable person. So Elizabeth's a great choice. I'm, I'm very happy to see them picking someone with her talent. Um, but will they accompany that change in the title with um, with a change in resources and, and priorities? If they do, then it will help them. You know, they've had an HR director there for, for years. Uh, CISA used to be the, when I was at DHS, CISA was the uh, National Protect Protection and Programs Directorate. It was a a part of DHS headquarters. And then NPPD became CISA uh, early in the administration of the, uh, the previous president. And um, so they've always, always had an HR director. Uh, so I want to see how they, how they change their behavior to, to accompany this change in title. Uh, if that happens, what will be the measures of that? What will change to indicate to you that CISA is serious about changing the nature of that structure or hierarchy, whatever you want to call it? Uh, it a big part of it will be the change in investment. Um, you know, the programs that are important for people in organizations do take money. Uh, and frequently, um, that money isn't available in agencies. You know, if... if if I told you my agency was going to cut its budget, what do you think are the first two things they would cut? It's always training is the first one that I always hear. Ab absolutely. Training and travel okay. are the two things yep. that are cut. So people are their most important resource, and now they have a chief people officer. And when they have a budget issue, let's see if they go after training. 
which is the development of their most important resource. So do they do that? And if the answer is yes, then they haven't changed their behavior. Uh, I want to see them resource training for their workforce. I'd like to see them resource the actual office of the chief people officer. So they have the talent that they need to be able to develop the strategic people programs that they need to be able to recruit the kind of talent they need. You know, CISA is, is competing in probably the single most competitive labor market there is with their cybersecurity. There's a lot of data out there right now that tells you that if you look over the next 10 years and look at the, the growth and demand for cybersecurity talent, and then look at the growth in supply, you'll see that they're, they're actually moving apart. The demand is increasing at a much higher rate than the supply. So this is definitely a shortage occupation. It's something where the talent is simply not there right now. And the government is trying to compete you know, in, a, in an area where people in the private sector can throw all the money they want to with this, and the government can't. The government is not structured in a way because of the way the civil service system works. It's not structured to be able to allow them to actually compete for talent unless they really change a lot of things about the way they do business. So I, I think that that this is in a, you know, they're in a really in a position where they have to to recruit and retain some of the most critical shortage category talent in the entire labor market. So it's 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 definitely a challenge for them. Uh, speaking of the civil service, you flagged for me something that you've always been passionate about, um, and that is the civil service itself and preserving. Uh, its integrity, and you flagged the Preventing a Patronage System Act uh, that a group uh, is pushing in the Senate. Senators from both parties are behind this bill. Um, what are you watching as it proceeds through Congress, Jeff? Francis, thanks for asking about this. This is critical. Uh, a a merit-based civil service is one of the strongest characteristics of an effective government. Because it means that the government is hiring people based on what they know and what they can do, not who they know and who they support politically. Uh, the Preventing a Patronage System Act is something that was originally uh, sponsored by Jerry Connolly in the House uh, and a group now of a bipartisan group in the House and the Senate are pushing to in include a version of the Preventing a Patronage System Act in the National Defense Authorization Act for 2023. It's absolutely critical that it pass. It, what it would do is it would prevent something like Schedule F. I'm sure you remember a lot of discussions about Schedule F. Oh, just it a few. Prevent, it would prevent something like Schedule F from happening again. Uh, again, there is bipartisan support for it. I think people, rational people, uh, there are still some rational people on the Hill even though we hear a lot about the crazies of both parties, it's that there are still rational people. And those rational people realize that, that playing games with the civil service is something that both parties could do, and it's detrimental to the effective operation of the government if either party does it. And so, there, so there is good support for passing this bill. 
but there are also people who don't want to do it. So, you know, I would encourage your listeners to call their representative, call their senators, uh, email them, uh, tell them that you would like to see this Preventing a Patronage System Act included in the National Defense Authorization Act. It's it's something that's really essential to preserve a merit-based civil service that works for the American people, not a group of partisan hacks and sycophants who work for a bunch of politicians. You know, one of the reasons I love having you on the show is I never have any doubts about where you stand on anything, Jeff. It's great to talk to you, my friend. Good to talk to you too, Francis. You can read more about the new Chief People Officer at CISA in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The number one CRM, Salesforce Customer 360 for public sectors and the integrated platform for public services. It features relationship management, case management, and lots more. You can learn more at salesforce.com slash government. The Department of Veterans Affairs has graduated thousands of veterans from its Veterans Employment Through Technology Education Courses pilot program. But the VA might not know what it doesn't know about the program. Don Locke is Acting Director for Education, Workforce, and Income Security at the Government Accountability Office. Don, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. What is the Vet Tech program? What's the goal of it? And what did you look at about it? Welcome. Thank you, Francis. Well, VetTech is a five-year pilot that started in April of 2019, and its aim is really to get veterans into high-tech fields through vocational training. That training typically takes about three months on average, and during that time, veterans receive tuition as well as a housing stipend. And so um, during this body, over the course of this body of work, we looked at just what's working working with the program and what might need some improvement. What did you find that was working well with the program, Dawn? Sure. Well, there's some really promising things, Francis, about this program. For example, we learned that it provides some relative ease to veterans. And what I mean by that is um, it's much shorter than a two to four year degree program. In addition, because of its virtual nature, veterans can access it from wherever they sit in the nation. They don't need transportation to get to the to the courses. And in addition, if they have mobility issues, they can still access the program. Um, one one really intriguing uh, other thing that we found, Francis, is that this program seems to be reaching uh, those who are traditionally underrepresented in the workforce. And what I mean by that is um, women and men are equally represented in, in vet tech as compared to their numbers in their workforce population. And in addition, um, although uh, minorities make up 33% of working veterans, they make up 64% of um, vet tech participants. So if, if this program or if this pilot ends up working, it could really help those who are underrepresented in, in the workforce find jobs. I note in your work, most veterans, 66% who enrolled in the program completed their training. Do we have a measure to compare that to in other types of similar training programs, maybe other parts of the government or private sector or somewhere else? You know, we did not look at that, Francis. We stayed focused on vet tech. And what we found is that, indeed, uh, the majority are graduating from the program, but there's 13% who are not finishing the program. And what we found there is that the VA doesn't know why. And so one of our recommendations revolved around um, insisting that the VA – 
better understand why veterans aren't able to complete the program and make adjustments to help them get through it and graduate. Another note I see about that idea of what happens after people exit the program, you write, VA doesn't calculate an employment rate for all vet tech participants who completed the program in accordance with other government and industry approaches. What do those approaches call for for VA to understand what data should they be collecting and and what do they do with that data once they have it, Dawn? Yeah, you know, um, the VA does have a calculation, as you say, um, but unfortunately, they call it an employment rate, but unfortunately is not an employment rate. Employment rate is an industry standard. Um, it's, it's a term of art that is very simply the number of uh, um, employed participants out of all participants. And what the VA is doing instead is they are excluding some of their graduates who do not yet have jobs. So that is unintentionally inflating the appearance of the success of vet tech. Very specifically, their latest calculation shows vet tech to have 70% employment, but the actual employment rate of vet tech is 47%. That's a drastic change and drastic difference. So, um, so we we recommended two things in this area. One, that they um, if they want to use their calculation, that's fine, but be transparent about what they're including and what they're not. And then the second recommendation is we ask them to calculate the actual employment rate um, so that there's commonly understood results and so that the VA can also compare this program to other employment programs to see how it's faring. You talked about the fact earlier, Dawn, that the timeline here is truncated that people can get these accreditations and get these qualifications much more quickly than they could in a a traditional college degree program. And you write here, uh, uh, training providers told GAO the key benefit of vet tech includes an accelerated path to employment, virtual training. Three of five training providers said vet tech allows veterans to enter the workforce quickly. Veterans completed training in three months on average, according to GAO analysis of VA data. The reason I think that connects well to what you just Uh, described is it's not like this is going years and years and years out the VA has to collect that employment data it would seem to me it wouldn't be a heavy lift for them to keep track of these folks after they exit the program. That is correct. And you know what's interesting, Francis, is that they do have some of these outcome data. So 180 days after a person graduates from vet tech, the VA collects information as to whether they're employed, whether they started another program, or whether they um, are still unemployed. But what's curious is they're not using these data. They're not using the information. And so, again, the key is really for... um, um, vet tech to start aiming for using these these data so that they can demonstrate whether the pilot has been successful. Uh, referencing those training providers, you said there are some challenges that they've had, or you write that there are some challenges they've had in dealing with VA. What are they up against and, and what would ameliorate the problems that they're having with VA? Sure. So the trainers have told us that, that the this pilot has been a bit cumbersome for them. For example, it's hard for them to plan courses because they don't know whether the VA is going to run out of money. And indeed, in the first two years of the pilot, the VA did run out of money for vet tech. They also said that it takes a long time to process their applications to become trainers. In addition to that, the instructions are unclear for their qualifications to be trainers. So what the VA is doing is they're trying to revise some of their approval process for the trainers to, to reduce these challenges. 
But in addition to that, um, some of the trainers told us that it feels that they're taking on a great financial risk in order to be trainers for this program. And what I mean by that is after um, a participant graduates, they're required to seek employment and then turn in an employment form to the VA at 180 days to verify whether they received employment or not. If the, if the veteran did not um, find a job or if they don't, if they forget to turn in the form, the VA does not pay these trainers the final 50% of tuition owed. So that is a pretty big hit for these, for these trainers. And some of the trainers are trying to get around this by asking veterans to sign a form acknowledging that they need to seek employment. And if they don't, then uh, the veterans may have to pay some of the tuition and fees. You note the VA has identified, you write, several actions for enhancing vet tech. What is VA doing to reshape this program moving forward, Dawn? Well, one really promising thing that they did is in March of 2022, they held a summit. And during the summit, they in part discussed vet tech. And at that time, they identified 80 action items that could help improve this pilot what we found, though, is there was no follow through after that summit. So they don't have um, any goals or deadlines that they're aiming for to implement some of those action items. So again, this is another recommendation we made so that they can try to implement some of these improvements before the pilot ends in the next two years. Um, you write VA officials provided various versions of program objectives for vet tech that weren't consistent over the course of GAO's review. What's the result of what what's the uh, that po potential outcome of that kind of lack of consistency, Don. So th this is key to 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 you know our general findings overall. So. Uh, leading practices for pilot design stipulate that pilots have to have consistent measurable objectives. And we found that VA does not have this. As you mentioned, they have different objectives from year to year, but there's not even targets with those objectives. So for example, they have um, an objective like um, trying to ensure that there's positive relationships between employment and education. But, but what does that mean? How are they going to show that that was successful? There was another year where they had um, an objective to um, improve the employment of, of, of those who are participating. But again, what does that mean? Are they trying to get veterans better jobs, more sustained jobs, you know, more livable wages? And again, there's no targets tied to that objective. Um, so we, again, made a recommendation that they need to have these um, consistent, measurable objectives so that, that, again, they can show whether this pilot is working and whether the program is, is successful. In the work that you and your colleagues did, the thing that jumped out at me most, I have to say, was the title. The first word in the title, promising. Promising VA technology education pilot would benefit from better outcome measures and plans for improvement. Um, what overall was it that you found so promising about this that you put that right in the title, Dawn? Right. Well, again, so there's there's a number of things that it's super popular with the veterans because it's an easy course to take. It's reaching those underrepresented populations. Um, and it also, it, it has the promise of getting these folks jobs. The majority of individuals are graduating from this program. Now we just have to show whether they're truly getting into these jobs and whether those jobs are sustained. Don Locke of the Government Accountability Office, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me.
You can find a link to Dawn's work in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop Podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. 